Welcome to the premiere episode of the Horses Equine Innovators podcast, sponsored by Zoetis Animal Health. I am your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Every day, researchers at universities and other institutions around the world are investigating new ways to care for and understand our horses. In this podcast series, we'll be talking to those innovators to learn more about their work. Our guest for this first episode in the series is Dr. Martin Nielsen, an equine parasitologist and associate professor at the University of Kentucky's Maxwell H. Gluck Equine Research Center. He also co-authored the American Association of Equine Practitioners Parasite Control Guidelines. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us, Dr. Nielsen, and thanks for being our guinea pig on our first episode. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's start with your background. I know that you started your career as a practicing veterinarian in Denmark. How did you end up transitioning from being a practicing vet to research? And I think the big question is, what got you interested in worms? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's actually one that um, I often get asked, what on earth? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I mean, how could this? Uh, so, you know, I going to veterinary school in Denmark, um, that's kind of where I even developed the sort of interest in research. I, I didn't really know anything about it prior to going to vet school. I, I hadn't ever thought about, I'm not even sure I knew what a PhD was. I just wanted to be a veterinarian. But uh, going through school, um, I just developed an interest uh, in, in, in the equine or not the equine, the parasitology research group at that university at the time was extremely uh, active, had a lot of funding, had a lot of people working. And at one point, I think they had like 30 PhD students engaged in parasitology projects. None of them were equine, but lots and lots of projects and lots of funding. So lots of opportunities to you know, join the team and be a student worker. And I was one of many, many students that earned a little extra on the side and helped out with various parasitology uh, projects. And so I think, you know, I got my hands on there. And then in the Danish veterinary curriculum, you actually do a research project. It's a mandatory thing as part of the education that every veterinarian will actually have done their own project. They will have written up a report and defended it, sort of a mini master's. And so, of course, I chose to do it in parasitology. So, so my interest was, was there already. Uh, late um, 1990s, I was interested, um, even as a vet student. Right around that time, Denmark was changing their uh, legislation to make all dewormers available on a prescription-only basis, so only through veterinarians. And, and, you know, horse owners or animal owners in general would only be able to get their dewormers through their veterinarians. And the veterinarians would have to do some kind of diagnostic work work to in order to be able to justify the prescription. So, you know, that just led to a lot of questions. I mean, I was just wondering, how is this going to pan out? This is going to be such a dramatic change to from, a, from an over-the-counter availability, just like we have here in America, to, to this system. Is it even going to work? What are the needs? I mean, are we even ready? Do we have the everything we need to in order, in order for, for that to work out, in specifically perhaps to diagnose the parasites so the prescriptions can be made. So, so that happened in 1999. And, and like, like I mentioned before, there was a lot of research going on in parasitology at the university. Nobody was working on horses. So I thought, man, you know, I might be that guy. 
I did go into practice that you mentioned. I thought, you know, I started out wanting to be a veterinarian, you know, driving around my truck in an ambulatory practice. So I felt I had to do that and try that out and see how that worked for me. And in many ways, I loved it. I, I, I enjoyed this, this whole thing of showing up in the morning and not knowing what the day would look like and driving around and getting into contact with a lot of people uh, in a lot of different places and helping them with their animals. I did, I did really, I loved that. What I didn't like, I realized was this, this sort of generalist approach to things. You barely or rarely had any time to get into the depth of any particular question or, or problem. Uh, you just sort of had to come up with something quickly and then move on to the next patient. And I just realized more and more that my temperament was to sometimes really dig deep and get all the evidence, all the information you could get, you could get about a particular problem and then see what you could do to resolve it. And that's really the approach you take as a researcher. And that's what led me to go back into uh, to graduate school after three years of practice. And long story short, well, it's already a long story, I'm sorry, but um, I'm now here at a premier equine research institution where you know, we have a department full of people all devoted to helping the horse. Yeah, well, it sounds like a lot of what led you into this work was timing and your exposure in vet school. But what then led you to the U.S. and to Gluck to work in your lab there? Yeah, that's also a great question. I mean, yeah, your your point is 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 a very good one. A timing, it's kind of a random thing sometimes. Mm -hmm. But you know, um, you get into contact with. It's a, it's a matter of what people you run into in your, you know, on your path. And I say this to all the young people that come through my lab now, you know, you, you, you might run into something that at a certain topic, certain area of work uh, that interests you, but it's very often dependent on the people. And we had, a, we had a professor at the veterinary school in Denmark at the time who was particularly keen on encouraging young people. Uh, into getting involved with, with parasitology. He, he wasn't doing that across the board with everyone, but when he sensed that here's somebody who might actually have a little bit of an interest, he would encourage, he would make suggestions of ways to get involved, things that you could do, projects you could be involved with, meetings you could go to, and basically just provide, provide uh, young people with that opportunity. And so, so that's what he did. Uh, I, I'm just, just mentioning that. I, I'm trying to do that same thing now, and I think a big fulfilling part of my work now is, yeah, we do all this research, but we're also engaging young people and, and providing them with that opportunity to be involved with research at some level and get a little bit of a, you know, peek into the wheelhouse and know, you know, how, how does it work when you're generating scientific information? Uh, you know, how does that all work out? And um, how I ended up in the U.S. was, also interesting because I, I came back to the University of Copenhagen uh, 2004, starting my PhD, wanting to do equine parasitology uh, because I sort of had, I had identified this gap, nobody, nobody was working on it. And so I could find, I was able to find two great supervisors, uh, PhD supervisors, but none of them had a research program in equine parasitologists. One, was a general parasitologist uh, with some interest in equine, and then the other was a clinician, also with a great interest in equine parasitology, but none of them had an active research program. 
And so I still needed I needed to find somebody with more specific knowledge because when you read the papers and you're trying to figure out what should my project be about, you only, in, you know, reading the published papers, you only get part of the story. You get all the things that worked out and that worked out you know, good enough to be able to be published, but you, you, you don't really get a feeling for, you know, what thoughts might people have had, what approaches might they have tried that did work out. And in all of that, you need, uh, in order to be able to define what a project should be about. So I started reaching out to people that I could see I've been publishing about equine parasites, and that led me to the US. So in 2004, I reached out to uh, Dr. Tom Fly at the Louisiana State University, who had been a leader on, in, in the area for a long time, and basically asked if I could come just, just to seek some inspiration, have some conversations with him. And he said, sure, Martin. Um, but why don't you make a, and you put it as a small circular drive, uh, visiting three other guys in the southeast of the United States. And I, I said, well, that sounds, yeah, that's probably like a few hours of driving and not you know, being naive, never having been to the U.S. before, I, <laughs> I didn't really realize what that would entail. But yep. he, then, he then introduced me to three people, Dr. Gene Alliance here at the University of Kentucky. Dr. Craig Reitemeyer at the East Tennessee uh, Clinical Research, and, and Dr. Ray Kaplan at University of Georgia. And so I ended up visiting all four in the matter of 11 days, spent a lot of time on the road, uh, was extremely critical to my career that I got to meet these people, and they were all extremely welcoming, took, you know, set the time aside, talked to me, make suggestions. Um, uh, and, and also basically just sort of offering their thoughts on where I should be going. And so I, and they all become, became part of my network. And, and ultimately, they're the reason why I'm here today. Uh, I, I did not go to Kentucky at the time, but already then I was aware of the extremely unique resources that are available here. Uh, I ended up uh, hooking up with Dr. Kaplan and George. Uh, he had some thoughts on you know, some molecular techniques we could develop for diagnosing uh, some parasites, and I ended up spending a significant part of my PhD with him. I owe him a lot. Uh, you know, uh, he's been such a support, such a great mentor for me, both during the time as a PhD student and still actually now to this day. And so um, that's where my U.S. connection was established, and then. I went back, I graduated from the University of Copenhagen PhD. I got my first faculty position there, working in the clinical department. Uh, but then I, uh, I was you know, fortunate to get a grant that allowed me to go on a sabbatical. I thought, all right, I've been to Georgia, where should I go next? And I thought, well, Kentucky. <laughs> you know, they had these, these resources, this wealth of knowledge. Dr. Gene Lines was a living legend in parasitology. So, I went here on a sabbatical uh, back in 2008-2009, and that's where the uh, department chair, the director of the Gluck Center at the time, Mats Trotson, uh, sort of pulled me aside and said, hey, uh, Martin, uh, what are your career plans? And I'm like, well, I have a, I have a faculty position. I'm, I don't know where you want to go. And he's like, could you see yourself working in the U.S.? And I said, um, I think you need to ask my wife. <laughs> and so yeah. he and um, 
and actually Dr. Um, Ed Squires, who was at the block at the time as well, and basically invited us all out one night. And I, so, and I told my wife, you're never gonna ask us about this. And she's like, okay, all right, all right. And we sat there at this dinner at this restaurant. And I remember you know, we talked, we were chatting and, and they didn't sort of, and they didn't really bring it up. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I misunderstood. I mean, we like uh, starters, nothing happened. The main entrees, nothing happened. Dessert, they still didn't talk about it. And we were like, okay, they asked for the check. And I thought, okay, well, Maybe, maybe it was my Danish English, I didn't really, maybe I just misunderstood the whole situation. And we got up, you know, Ed Squire signed the bill and that was a tip and everything. And we stood up on the way out. And then he just leaned over to my wife and said, hey, oh, by the way, could you see yourself living in the US? And she said, sure. And he said, all right. <laughs> and then they set everything in motion to try it. And, and advertise the position, you know, those have to be advertised and made mm -hmm. open to others to apply. That's where the financial crisis hit everywhere, including here. So this university went into a hiring phase and, and weren't allowed, you know, the department wasn't allowed to open any new positions. And so Dr. Johnson called me up and said, Martin, I'm sorry, uh, we're in this situation right now, we, we just can't do anything. And I thought, oh, well, yeah, you know, it's one of those, you know, nice, encouraging conversations that just didn't pan out for reasons that's nobody's fault. And, mm -hmm. you know, so over the course of the next couple of years, he sort of checked in with me. He's from Sweden. So he would sometimes be heading home to visit family and he would always swing by Copenhagen and we would just sit, sit down and chat. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, it doesn't hurt. Then a faculty member here in, at the Gluck Center actually um, passed away very sad, very unexpected, but um, that, you know, all of a sudden there was this unfilled position and uh, Dr. Trost was able to convince the dean at the time that, you know, this it would be useful to convert that into a parasitology position because Dr. Lyons uh, had established this program and the department wanted to make sure that they could continue it. Uh, you know, going forward, should he all of a sudden decide to retire or uh, just pass away or whatever. And, and the dean allowed it. So, so uh, then finally the position was available, was um, advertised and I applied and I've been here almost nine years now. And so, you know, you, you named uh, some big name in parasitology uh, that those of us who write and work in the horse health space are really familiar with. But I think it brings up this interesting thing that we're seeing in research is a generational shift. Yes. Where we had yeah, so we had all these these greats in, that were boomers and they're retiring out or aging out of the work. And then you, like me, are in the the Gen X, the sandwich generation, and there's a lot fewer of us. And then we're followed by this big millennial generation that I think outnumbers the boomers at this point. So do you find in research that uh, that you're in a space where there aren't quite as many people entering your field of research? Uh, interesting, interesting question. I, I, I kind of think that in my area of uh, parasitology, um, 
and this is generally speaking, not just equine, I think we went through sort of a dry period uh, funding-wise uh, up through the 80s, 90s, and perhaps even the early 2000s where, you know, we had all these great dewormers and everything was under control and there was just less incentive to, to invest a lot of funding into research. So I think, I actually think that generation uh, struggled a little bit. For me right now, I can tell you it is way different. Uh, there's a lot more need and it's much more recognized now uh, for, for research and, and certainly for my area equine. And I also get a lot of interest from young people. Um, so I, I'm not struggling uh, in with, when it comes to attracting or finding the next graduate students and engaging young people and engaging my undergrads and my veterinary students. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're an upswing and we have been for a while when it comes to just recognition of, of the need and also the availability of at least some sources of funds. Uh, I mean, we can, we can discuss those, those more in detail if you're, if you're interested, but, but no, no, I want to, I want to sort of, you know, I think, it, I think things are looking pretty positive. Uh, and, and the other point that you bring up, which I just like very briefly would like to touch upon this, is this whole thing about the shift between generations. I think it's so important to make sure that the knowledge gets passed on. And there's so many ways to do it. I mean, one is obviously through training students that come out of your lab and, and the people I mentioned before have, have, have all been part of that and done that and, and ensured that there's a legacy. But, but I also think me, Working with all of them, you know, has been so valuable for me in my career that I've, I've, I've been around, I've been able to, to um, you know, have interaction with, with these great people with all the great knowledge and specifically, particularly Dr. Lyons that I worked alongside with here for many years. Um, that's so valuable uh, and, and, and important. And those are all the things that aren't necessarily all written down. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway. Yeah. So why is the work that you do and your colleagues do, why is it important for the horse owner, for people like me at home with our horses that every day aren't living in your world? You, you live in and breathe horse worms. <laughs> and um, but what does it mean for those of us on the ground? I mean, it's important because all of you, all of you, and I mean really all, everywhere in the world, everybody who has horses deals with parasite control. Uh, it's just part of the, the handling and the managing of your horse. You all have to make some decisions regarding what to do, when to do, with what and how. And those are the questions I get all the time. And so my mission is to provide those answers. You all, we all deal with, with parasites whether we want it or not. There is not a horse out there that doesn't have any parasites. They all have them. And so, so there's always going to be all these, these questions and they will never go away. And so, yes, it's very important. It's important because, you know, we're running, we're sort of finding ourselves more and more with our back up against the walls because, because of all, all the drug assistance, we're running out of treatment options. So what are we going to do uh, and how? And should we ever get a new type of dewormer on the market. I, I don't see that coming anytime soon, but it, hopefully it will happen. What are we gonna do different? Can we do it a little bit, you know, can we be more, can we be smarter? 
in in how we how we make use of, of these products and can we learn from the past i think those are important questions and, and those apply to everybody it doesn't matter whether you have like the fanciest most expensive horse like top performing athlete or breeding horse in the world or just your backyard pony you know the parasites don't care they're not snobs they just get they just infect the horses so something that's been really great about your work is that you uh, you can speak to the researchers but you're also really good at at speaking to the horse owner and sharing information with horse owners and recently you won the the winnie award from the equus film festival for your educational videos targeting the horse owners about debunking deworming myths can you tell us a little bit about that project yeah um i mean i'm trying to i think it's an obligation as a as a research scientist and certainly someone working at a at a language university uh, to, to disseminate knowledge to what I call the end user, you know, it's veterinarians, horse owners, managers, people that, that deal with parasite control on a practical level. And it's an obligation that we have to, to basically find effective ways uh, of communicating this and, you know, bringing the message across. And I like to just try out different platforms uh, different media, if you will, social media, uh, and I, we have we're having these discussions here at the in the department. I mean, should we should we increase our presence on social media? And my opinion is a big yes. I think we have to, but there are so many different ways of doing it. So what I did with that video series was just like I wanted to prove a point. I wanted to to basically demonstrate with your own smartphone uh, and iMovie. You can make, you know, videos without spending oceans of time, and they can be effective. And I wanted to make them short, 45 seconds or less, so they could go on Twitter as well as Facebook as well as on my YouTube channel, um, just to try a different format where you you basically have a single message. Uh, we know that people's attention span on social media might not be more than a few seconds anyway, so just you know, cut to the chase bring the message across, and then a brief explanation why. So that's what I wanted to do. And I, you know, having worked in this field since, well, I mean, since veterinary school, I've come across so many misconceptions and myths, myths and, and, you know, traditions that are not based in anything um, that I, I would like to try and address and make people aware. So that, that's how that idea of deworm debunk, they're basically debunking some of those, those misconceptions or myths. And uh, that series ran in the fall of uh, last year, so 2019. Um, the videos are all still available uh, on the Gluck Equine uh, Research Center Facebook page. You can look that up and find the videos uh, between October and, and December of last year. Uh, with comments and questions. Uh, you can also find them on my YouTube channel, Martin K. Nielsen, Equine Parasitology. All the videos are there as well, uh, as well as on my Twitter feed, at uh, Martin K. Nielsen. So <clears throat> just really trying to, to, to spread the message and, uh, in, in, a, in a manner that is meaningful and useful to people. Uh, and then uh, 
Yeah, uh, I learned about this film festival and, and the director of the film festival, uh, festival Lisa Dearson, uh, encouraged me to enter my film into the festival and she told me there was an educational category and I thought, why not? And I won. So that was quite something. I think I'm going to do another video series again, uh, if I can find the time. Um, I'd like to make them a little longer this time, try a, a slightly different format a little more educational. Uh, I was inspired by some, some videos my daughter uh, was watching. She was preparing for uh, some a history exam that she was taking in high school. And there was this, this guy who was doing like a brief overview of you know his different historical periods in world history. And, and I thought I could do this name with, with you know peer sites and here's how to approach uh, putting together a parasite control program for bulls, for yearlings, for young horses, for brood mares, and et cetera, et cetera. So if I can find the time, I will try to do that. So for our audience, I think a lot of us, when we think of research and researchers, we think lab coats and microscopes. <laughs> um, so that's part of what you do, but you also have a research herd there at UK. Can you describe to us what that herd is like and, and what they're used for? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, when I talked about the, the unique resources that I noticed already as a grad student here at the University of Kentucky, I particularly meant those two research herds. They are really um, something else. I mean, uh, Dark Alliance, uh, who was here, passed away two years ago, had maintained these uh, for, well, actually four decades. Um, they were, there were two herds. They were both established in the 1970s uh, by him and his uh, colleague, Dr. Harold Drudge. And they, um, they went to, I don't know who had the idea, but they, they decided to basically just not like, keep a herd of horses without deworming. And, and I think kind of just see what happens. So they, uh, that herd, is, I inherited that herd, and, and that's a major resource for me now uh, as, a, as a source of, of research samples and material. Uh, they haven't been dewormed. The horses, now several generations of horses, have not been dewormed for 41 years this year. And so they have a lot of parasites, and actually in quite high numbers. The horses are remarkably healthy. Um, we use these for a bunch of different things. And some of my videos in that series in the fall actually talk about that. So how I get seasonal data, data on seasonal fluctuations for different parasites. Uh, we've also developed several diagnostic uh, techniques, new diagnostic tests for parasites. And for those kinds of, of, of tests, you need to validate them. And in order to be able to validate a diagnostic test, you need samples from animals where you know that they're infected with a particular parasite. So you can make sure that the test is actually detecting them. That herd of horses is a fantastic resource for validating purposes and a lot of other things. Uh, the fact that they haven't been dewormed for 41 years means that the parasites are naive to ivermectin, to moxidectin, to drugs that the most used drugs, the most used dewormers in equine parasite control. And these parasites have never seen those. So, so they are not resistant. We can look at what the genes that may be if we compare resistant parasites to parasites from these horses 
and we can start mapping out you know, what are the genes that are involved. There are so many different genetic mechanisms, and we are st still struggling to understand exactly how uh, drug resistance works on a genetic level in, um, in horse parasites or in parasites in general. The other herd is a herd of miniature horses uh, that was established in 1974. And Dr. Lyons did a series of studies with these where he basically just dewormed them with, you know, not anything excessively, but with commercially available dewormers following sort of the norms at the time. He typically would treat them every two months year round, which is not what we recommend anymore, but that was recommended back in the 70s and 80s. And he just documented how quickly resistance developed. He first used one uh, class of dewormer, the benzimidazoles. That's where you have fenbenazole uh, and oxybenazole, so panicurop, anthocyte, those kinds of products, and got resistance within eight years. Then he shifted over to, to pyrantel uh, products, that's your strontic type dewormer, uh, same six times a year uh, protocol, got resistance within six years, and now he showed that they had resistance to both. So these parasites are double drug resistance, which is actually the norm uh, all over the world. So to have small strong drop parasites that are resistant to two out of three drug classes and leaving only ivermectin moxidexin as the last resort. And so, so we have a simulation, I call it a mini, uh, pun intended, uh, simulation of the real life scenarios that most people are struggling with uh, facing around the world. And that allows us to evaluate um, various deworming programs, regimens, in the face of resistance to kind of see uh, what, when you already have resistance, how can you go about deworming wisely? And so it was just tremendous resources that you'll find nowhere else in the world. And, and I, you know, I, I try to raise funding to support them uh, periodically uh, because I, I think they're worth maintaining for the future. And I think it's in everyone's interest that we keep these horses and in, 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 um, make them available for the kind of work that we do. And I also make sure to share uh, resources, samples, et cetera, with collaborators. Uh, again, because we're kind of the only ones that have this, I get a lot of interest from researchers uh, at other institutions, both here in the US, but also uh, internationally for samples and materials, et cetera, et cetera. So besides the actual living, breathing horses in your herds, what tools do you have uh, that technology allows you, or what technology allows you to also do your research? What technology allows me to do my research? I mean, I think, um, I think part of my research is actually to develop uh, new technology. Um, and so we, on the diagnostic side, we have developed a few diagnostic tests and we're helping colleagues uh, develop and validate uh, additional tests. So blood tests, looking for uh, blood worms and small strontials. Uh, these small strontials have this assisted stage where the larvae just sit in the mucosal wall and no egg count will ever detect them. And so finding, um, finding a, a method that can actually detect the presence of these and, and approximately how many. That's a collaboration with uh, folks over in the United Kingdom. Uh, and then we have this uh, automated accounting system that we have developed here. Um, it's uh, basically trying to see if we can get a machine to do the accounting for us instead of us having to do it 
by the microscope with our little clicker. Uh, and then, so, so the uh, concept is to uh, use image-based analysis. So we have a system that takes a picture of a sample where the XR filter and then uh, stained, and then it's an image uh, anal analysis algorithm that recognizes the eggs based on uh, shape and size and, and delivers an egg count in two and a half minutes. And we've developed that and validated that. It's very uh, precise, much more precise than any manual count or counting method. And so, so those are technologies that we are part of developing, if not that we have developed ourselves. I think that if you ask about emerging research technology in sort of a, in the broader picture, you know, one thing that's happening right now in, in, in this podcast series, you will be hearing about this from a lot of people, is the whole omics uh, concept. So any, any word that ends with the word omics, uh, that's just, uh, that's a description of a method that generates a lot of information. So for example, genomics. So all the sequencing, genetic sequencing material from the entire genome. Um, that's something we can do now uh, from the parasites. Uh, we can do it for the horse, we can compare the two. Um, and because it's become affordable, uh, it used to be extremely expensive and price is going down every year in the uh, sequencing technologies are becoming better and better so the quality of the data that we get is, is going to get better and better. Uh, you can do transcriptomics. So that's the genes that are expressed. So DNA is translated into RNA. RNA are the uh, genes that are then active or upregulated. So not only can you ask what are the genes, you can also ask which genes are active in response to filling the blank. And so again, we can do that in response to dewormers. Uh, you know, we expose parasites to a certain dewormer. Are there any genes that are upregulated? Are there some genes that are downregulated? I had a PhD student just defending her dissertation uh, this fall and doing exactly that with the uh, aspirin parasites and horses. So, you know, all of a sudden we can start digging into these things that we weren't able to before. There's, there's, you know, uh, proteomics. So that's looking at what proteins are the parasite making. Uh, and there's metabolomics. So there's anything and everything omics. That's a big area right now, and it will continue to be going forward. So when you talk about uh, equine internal parasites, you talk about parasite control. And if people are if horse owners are talking, we tend to say deworming, our deworming program. Why do you think it's important to shift that language from deworming program to parasite control program? Well, I mean, because parasite control is more than deworming. Uh, and I think, I think we want people to think about that and be aware that it, it matters how you how you manage your pastures, what quality the pastures are, the stocking density, um, and then um, you know if you want to do something sophisticated, you can do mixed or alternate grazing with sheep, uh, cattle. That I see people doing in some areas of the world, not so much uh, here in the states. But I see that a lot in, in Ireland, for example, and uh, some in New Zealand, um, and so. You know, there's so many other things you can do that are helping control the parasite. Deworming also means getting rid of the worms, if you really think about it. And 
we have to realize that we're never ever going to get rid of the worms, but we can keep the parasites under control so that we minimize or avoid that risk of parasitic disease. So that's the whole goal here. And I think we have to remind ourselves and each other that uh, that's the goal, is to control the parasites, not eradicate them. I think we can say that we, you know, we can actually try to eradicating the parasites. I think that the chemical warfare we've been leading against them was probably with that in mind. And then I think, you know, it's safe to say that we didn't really get rid of a single one of them, but we got assistance out of that exercise. So we know that that's not sustainable. So, so a little bit more of a holistic approach where deworming is an incorporated part that will never go away, but we have to use our, our deworming products wisely. So you mentioned that that mini herd that you have at UK and the resistance and how quickly that developed in uh, with the, the internal parasites in those minis, which to me as a horse owner is kind of terrifying. Um, but you you said that that those minis were dewormed on that traditional program that was recommended in the 70s and 80s, and I find that horse owners are still following those same protocols that are now outdated. Um, why do you think horse owners have been so reluctant to change and adopt parasite control guidelines rather than a deworming program? Um, I think there are several reasons uh, for that. I, I, wanna, I want to emphasize that I actually do see change. Um, I see change in what veterinarians are recommending now. I, and I see that in a number of different places. Uh, this morning, I had an email come from uh, the American Association of Equine Practitioners that I worked with, and, and they were like, uh, there's this the survey that was recently published by the FDA, so the Food and Drug Administration of the United States, where they asked veterinarians, cattle and horse veterinarians, you know, various questions about how they approach parasite uh, control and what they recommend to their clients. And it was very clear that the equine vets are really recommending, um, you know, all the right things, the things that we put in the guideline paper. Uh, so, you know, the message is coming across. And, and so I think, you know, the, I think we just have to realize the change is slow. We also have done a number of surveys uh, targeting horse owners. And two of them, you know, one was nationwide with the uh, so-called NAMS, the National Animal Health monitoring systems. That's a program with the USDA. I was part of that with them. And the Equine Survey of 2015-16, we we asked them, asked horse owners a lot of questions about how do we approach parasite control. And then we were able to compare uh, those results with a similar survey also done by the same entity, NAMS, in 1998, so 20 years apart. And and interestingly, you know, we did see change. Um, most Actually, the change was primarily just not treating as often as back in, in 1990. So people treat, they deworm less, less frequently per horse per year. That's interesting. Uh, and I think there's, there's that recognition that, you know, a lot, there's been way too many treatments, way too many deworming treatments administered. People have over-dewormed and hasn't been necessary. So, so that message has come across. But there is, certainly in that survey, a reluctance um, towards 
getting a whole lot of parasite egg counts done. And you know, when you think of the psychology there, you, you can actually understand why, because you know, you look at two recommendations. Uh, one is deworm less. That saves you money there. Uh, and so that's a no-brainer. And you realize that your horses are doing just as low with fewer deworming. Uh, so that's that's great. Everybody, you know, everybody's happy, horses are happy, and horse owners are saving money. Great. The other recommendation. Adopting more parasite fecal egg counts, that comes with a cost. It costs you per sample for have, getting that analyzed, but it's also cost in terms of extra effort, getting the samples collected, getting them shipped or up to the clinic or whatever you're going to do. And, and, you know, and the cost per sample is often more than it is for a dewormer. So, so there's reluctance there, and I think that's basically just because of the cost. And then there's, you know, there's some confusion. What do we do for those egg counts? What does it mean when you get an egg count? And how do you, what do you make of those counts? And I, I think that's where I come into the picture, uh, really trying to educate and give talks, seminars, doing podcasts like this, um, really just trying to provide as much guidance as possible uh, in terms of what to do with these things and, and maybe reduce some of that confusion. I think I often hear from people, I, you know, I participate in, in a couple of those Facebook groups where horse owners can ask veterinarians questions um, and I chime in there as much as I, I find time for um, and they often say, you know, you get as many opinions about deworming as you, you know, as you ask people. Uh, you know, the more people you ask, the more different opinions you get. And I see that, I recognize that, and, and I'm trying to just do what I can to at least provide the guidance that I think is right. And sometimes I make jokes about it and say, well, that's fine. You get a lot of different opinions as long as you just do what I say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I recognize that it's hard. And, and then, you know, the last thing that also is, is certainly a factor that plays a role here is just, you know, we are, you know, traditions can be strong. You know, I used to always do things this way. And as, as human nature, you're just not necessarily very willing to start changing something that you have done for a long time. And so, so that is, that's also a little bit of the psychology we're up against. Where, you know, people have a certain way of doing things they're comfortable with. And, and uh, you know, they're, regardless of how much fancy information I might be able to show them or provide them with, it's still an uphill battle to get them to change their approach. But I think it's happening. I, I just think we, we have to be patient and, and just sort of know that this is a slow process and it's a gradual process. Um, and that just requires people like me and my colleague, we just need to keep going, so. But didn't you say that those minis, that those, they had resistance within six years? Yeah. So the resistance happens quickly, but change in our management is happening slowly. Is yes. that okay? No. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to hear to say I'm not going to I'm not here to say that this is all great. Um, but I think I, we just have to accept the, those are the conditions we're working under. I mean, changing 
direction, changing habits is something that you just don't do overnight. And and yeah, that that happened quite quickly. I think I think though I think as a general concept, I think we can say that resistance in parasites is much slower to develop than drug resistance in bacteria. Um, and, and there's many many reasons why, but um, uh, it takes it is a slow grinding process with the aspirate parasites, the large roundworms and voles. That took you know 20 years. Uh, in, in 20 years of heavy usage of Arfmex before that started popping up uh, in the early 2000s. And now it's everywhere. Um, and so it, it is something that takes years, sometimes even a couple of decades, rather than weeks or months, uh, like you sometimes see with the bacteria. Um, and then the other thing that's different between bacteria becoming drug resistant and then parasites um, is once it's there, in the parasites, it never goes away. So resistance, once it's developed, it is here to stay, and it will never ever revert back to, the parasites will never ever revert back to becoming susceptible to that particular dewormer thing. So once we've lost a dewormer, you know, in a different, in a specific parasite, it's never gonna come back. So what's the consequence of that, of not having a way to uh, treat those in horses that that do need treatment yeah well, i mean that's sort of pretty obvious um that you know we we would like to be able to have an effective couple treatment options for that horse and we might be in a situation where we don't uh and i think that's the big fear um that we end up having nothing that works um even though most of the time horses are completely healthy even with um, sizable parasite burdens, but then every now and then there's the single horse that isn't, right? And that's really what we're here for. That's A, to try and prevent that from ever happening, and B, if it's happening, that horse is sick from its parasites, then we want to be able to treat that horse and do it safely and effectively. And, and those are the scenarios that we are, you know, sort of moving towards. Uh, we, we can look at the small ruminants, the sheep and the goats, and they're a little bit worse off than we are with the horses because there are plenty of examples of total drug failures where you know you, you have a population of parasites infecting goats or sheep and, and nothing works regardless of what you're, you're throwing at them. At least we still have a somewhat effective option for each of the important parasites in the horse, but we're, you know, we don't have as many options anymore. And in many cases, we might be down to just one option for some of these parasites. So with that in mind and the work that you're doing, where do you think we're going to be in 10 years when it comes to parasite control? I mean, I, I hope that, um, that we will have a new dewormer for horses on the market. Uh, like I said, there's, there's really no bulletins right now. It's been like this ever since I started about 15 years ago. Uh, so, but, you know, but in 10 years, there is reason to at least be optimistic and and hope that something new could be could be made available. Um, if that happens, I hope that we, as an equine industry, including veterinarians and the pharmaceutical industry, um, have learned from the history and not going to be committing the same mistakes again. Um, which is, you no, know, forget about testing. 
just go ahead and blast them. We now have something that works. Everything's great. I mean, if we end up doing that again, that will be a terrible mistake. Uh, and I'm going to be here to, to do everything I can to prevent that. But I know that there's also some marketing forces in here uh, where, you know, you, if you're a company, you want to you want to maximize the selling. So there's there some, some different interests there. So I certainly hope that we can uh, at least approach this differently than how it was done in the past. And then I think, you know, we'll have more exciting and convenient diagnostic tests, tests that are, you know, easy to use and cheap and meaningful uh, that will allow us and inform us uh, about the needs of any particular horse. And so, so those are things I think in 10 years we'll know much more about all the genetics that I talked about earlier with the omics uh, approach. And I think that will give you, that will provide us with much better understanding of the genetics behind resistance. It might also lead to discovering new drug targets and better diagnostics. So there's a lot of potential there that I think we'll be tapping into a lot over the next 10 years. Well, we touched earlier on the new generation of researchers coming up uh, and your work mentoring graduate students in your lab. Do you have any specific advice for young people who might be listening to this podcast and who have an interest in this area and, and want to enter it? What, what would you tell them? Um, I want to emphasize that, yeah, I have graduate students, but I, I have even more undergraduate students. I mean, Probably currently, I have about 10 undergrads uh, working in my lab or doing projects with me. And, and I emphasize that because, you know, that everybody, most people, you know, in higher education at least, have been an undergrad at one point. And the earlier you can get involved with something like this or just getting some experience with being involved with research, uh, whether that be equine parasitology or something else, the better. Uh, and that's that's what I, I always say when I have a, I had an undergrad in my office just prior to, to us, uh, you know, starting this podcast, and, and they're always asking, you know, they're saying, I don't really know much of research, Dr. Nielsen, but I'd like to get a little bit of, of some experience, and, and I said, that's a perfectly, that's a perfectly uh, fine motivation for coming here and working with me. I mean, I don't need people to tell me, I've always dreamt to be a parasitologist like you, because that's going to be a lie, <laughs> in most cases, at least. But, you know, there's just this, this general curiosity about something that they don't know about, but they're willing to learn about it. That's perfect. And so, so you know, I encourage young people to get involved in at many universities. There will be, if you're interested specifically in parasitology and you're, you're at a university with a veterinary school, there will be parasitology people, labs with researchers and people who do diagnostic work where you can come and get involved and uh, reach out. And I, I think most professors uh, are like me, you know, we know that there's gonna be a generation after us and the only way to make sure that, that that's gonna really happen is to encourage and engage as many young people as possible. I've even uh, had uh, high school students come and do projects with me for their science fairs. Um, and uh, that's been just as much fun. So I'm not saying you have to, but I'm just saying that that could also be an option to be able to do or get involved with some projects as a, as a high school student. So I think it's just a matter of reaching out um, and, that, and most labs will be very welcoming. Um, 
unless they have like certain restrictions that I don't have with horse parasites, but other animals might have parasites that um, are zoonotic, meaning that they can infect people, and then there's some biosafety issues that you have to also deal with in order to get to work with those. Not, not that it makes it impossible, but that just is another little obstacle. Uh, me with the horse parasites, none of them infect people, so we're we're very safe there. So, yeah, so, I, yeah. I just encourage if, if anyone has an interest, um, and I I get lots of people just asking me questions, emailing me. Uh, uh, or asking questions on the, some of those Facebook groups that I mentioned before. I mean, there's always an opportunity to reach out and just ask. I'll try so, to answer. Yeah. So that is the the human resource, you know, bringing people into research and getting uh, the next generation excited about research. But research is also expensive. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about funding sources and how research like yours gets the financing it needs to go forward? Yeah, um, I think there's, for me, there's actually four categories of funding. So we have the federal grants like USDA, uh, NIH, et cetera, where you can apply, there's calls for different uh, themes. And then if you think you have something that might fit, then you can submit a proposal in and keep your fingers crossed. I, I've been funded through the USDA. Currently, uh, I am funded um, in a collaborative project where we actually have a, a, a bacterial dewormer that we're testing in horses. And uh, that can be something for the future, actually. Uh, we've been, uh, we did a treatment trial in the fall in foals, and uh, this stuff uh, just knocked out the aspirate parasites, uh, which is very exciting. Um, didn't really do anything against the straw gels, so we need to look at what we can do to maybe make that work as well, but at least we have great promise with the aspirate parasites, just as an example. So federal funding being one category, then I uh, get what I call uh, industry funding or pharmaceutical funding. So some of these drug companies, dewormer companies, some often would have an interest in us doing various projects that are related to something with our product. Not necessarily just testing the efficacy of a product, we do that too, but it's uh, with uh, the sponsor of this podcast, Soetis, I have a long history of evaluating um, both inflammatory and immunological reactions to parasite infection in horses and to deworming of those parasites. So if you have a horse with a lot of parasites, big burden of parasites, is there any risk of an adverse reaction? if you deworm it with a very effective dewormer, and we've done that with a series of different types of dewormers, and that's been a very, very meaningful avenue of research for me, and we've been able to really look at how the parasites interact with the host immune system and vice versa. There's a whole lot of crosstalk going on there. That's, that's kind of fascinating. Um, uh, so, um, so that's just an example of some of that research. So industry funding, that uh, was the second category. And then, um, Private donations, so philanthropy, if you will. So I do get uh, donations from uh, single donations from the average horse person that just feels like, okay, Martin Dr. Nelson is doing some interesting work. I'd like to support it. Um, I've run a few crowdfunding campaigns, uh, rallying support, uh, and that's been quite useful. I get support from some of the some of the horse farms around here, uh, elsewhere in the world that just sort of appreciate. 
uh, the, the work that we're doing and want to make want to support us going forward. Some of that goes towards those uh, those unique researchers that I talked about before. <clears throat> I mean, they don't come for free, so I do have a budget about hundred thousand dollars a year that I need to find in order to keep them. And so, so that's philanthropy, private funding. And then the fourth category is uh, business investing. And so that's interesting when I talked about that automated smartphone-based uh, app system that does the accounting automatically with uh, image analysis. We have actually uh, established a little spin-off company. And then through that, we've been seeking private investors that are investing in the business. But part of that is research dollars that allows my lab to do more uh, validation and develop, try different things. So in, uh, in this day and age, uh, you gotta just basically go in all possible directions that might lead to some funding. And it's a, it's a lot about um, selling your idea and pitching it, you know, it's kind of a shark tank approach sometimes. Um, you know, why, why are you gonna get out of investing in Martin Nelson's program? But I think it's a challenge. I think it's also a fun one many times. A uh, big part of, of my job is, is to be a fundraiser um, and, and nurture these relationships with entities that could have an interest in, in what I do. So. so that makes me want to see you go on Shark Tank. I think that would be a... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it'd be interesting to see how Mr. Wonderful responded to uh, horse worms. <laughs> Right, right. We're, we're coming to uh, the end of our hour, uh, but before we go, I wanted to ask you what the one thing you hope horse owners take away from this conversation if they're listening. If they're still listening, um, I'm going to say first, thumbs up. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for staying with us. No, I hope that horse owners, veterinarians, etc., be with the knowledge that we're here I am here, my lab, my people, we're here to serve you. That's really our mission here. And, and that's really all it is. We're trying to do everything we can to help and to guide and to provide with, you know, with, to provide new technologies, new options, treatment-wise, diagnostic-wise, uh, basically answer the questions that you all face with. So I hope, I hope that that's the impression I've left. That's, that's at least what I'm trying to do here. Well, that is all the time that we have for our conversation, but I want to thank you, Dr. Nielsen, for joining us. Really interesting conversation this, this morning. Well, thank you for having me, and it's, it's an honor to be the first. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And um, thank you for being so helpful. I also want to thank our sponsor, Zoetis Animal Health, for helping make this podcast series possible. And to our audience, thank you for listening, and we hope you will subscribe and join us for the next episode of the Equine Innovators podcast. If you're interested in more horse health news, please go to thehorse.com. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next time.